today we are joined by CAP Educational Therapy Group Learning Specialist, Anna Aguilar-Gardner. She is a math teacher and a learning specialist at CAP Ed Therapy Group, and she talks about the best ways to collaborate with the classroom teacher and how to approach math material the same way. Anna talks about the importance of building a student-created resource guide and how to use notes that the student took, even if they didn't understand it, to find similar practice problems. She talks about how fractions are a predictor of math success in later years. This blew our minds. And she chats with us about word problems and which apps to use and how to use them. She also shares how educational therapists can use their own fear of math as an opportunity to connect with their learners. If you would love to work with an educational therapist or learning specialist at CAP Educational Therapy Group, we would love to talk to you. CAP Educational Therapy Group specializes in learners with executive functioning skills challenges and or ADHD. And the best way to connect with us is at www.capedtherapy.com. If you want to work with Steph's practice in Redondo Beach, California, they do all the things. The best way to connect with with her practice is by going to www.myedtherapist.com. Let's dig in. You want to learn faster, but sometimes working harder is just not the answer. You have to learn smarter. The Educational Therapy Podcast. Hi, Smarties. Welcome to episode 225 of Learn Smarter, the Educational Therapy Podcast. I'm Stephanie Pitts. And I'm Rachel Cap. We have with us today, Anna Aguilar-Gartner, and she is one of us, and we're so happy to have you here. Welcome. Thank you. Anna is a learning specialist at CAP Educational Therapy Group. We specialize in learners with executive functioning skills or ADHD diagnoses. And Anna, how long have you been a team member? This is my second year. Right. And one of the things that I have always loved and appreciated about you is that math is really a zone of genius for you. So I wanted you to come on the podcast and share a little bit about who you are and what you teach and what you do. So let's do that first. So tell us about yourself. Yeah. So I am a math and science teacher from eight to three, only from September to June. (laughs) And I have taught for the past eight years with tiny schools in South Texas that only have one stoplight and a barbecue to urban Los Angeles to the private schools on the West side of Los Angeles. Okay, so we invited you on the podcast today to share a little bit about what you wish educational therapists and learning specialists, those working with the diverse learners that we all work with, what do you wish that we knew? So I think I'm going to take this from the perspective of like, there's two different pieces for a math teacher. Math teachers have such a long list of goals for students to achieve by the end of the year. And a lot of the students we work with don't come in with all the little prerequisite knowledge. So as math teachers, we're constantly filling in information and trying to backlog and fill in and also make sure that they're ready to meet ends of the year. And I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done in together and not in opposition of each other. 
Are you talking about collaboration? And it also depends on your classroom. If you're a teacher with 180 students, it might not be as collaborative as you wish. But reinforcing what happens in the math classroom using the same type of strategies in the classroom as opposed to when you're in session and make sure that they're cohesive between the two is really important for the learning. So one of the things that I really go back to is like when we were taught how to do math, we use the term FOIL for multiplying two binomials. And then in an ideal scenario, most of my teachers have now switched to a visual method of doing foiling where it looks like four little boxes. It looks like a Punnett square when mom and dad give a gene yeah, and it's called a tabular array. And making sure that like you're using the tabular array instead of using the word foil so that like the student knows and is reinforced with those types of strategies. So this brings me to my first question for you. And this is something I love to ask because you straddle both worlds, right? You're doing the one-on-one work and you're in the classroom. One of the things we often talk about as a team and Maya Therapist talks about as a team is how to effectively collaborate with teachers. So as a math teacher, how do you prefer collaboration to take place? The biggest thing, like the way that I set up my own students in the math classroom for success is having them be really strong note takers so that when they go to sessions, and this is something I wish every math teacher did, was like being like, here, you have a purple sheet of paper. On this purple sheet of paper, you're going to make sure that you never lose this because it's got all your visual guide for when we do this tabular array. Having a really solid set of notes in class means that the student is able to then take that to any outside support and be like, look, this is what we're doing in class. This is what I need support with, but I need to work within these parameters. As an ed therapist, what do you do when you don't have that basic resource in the classroom? Then it comes down to the hunting in Google Classroom and looking at the textbook resources that they have. And then if that doesn't exist, I'm going to escalate it to the teacher being like, look, I don't know what exactly we should reinforce, but I want to make sure it aligns with what you're doing in the classroom. I love that. And one of the things that I specifically appreciate is that you're doing a little bit of work before reaching out to the classroom teacher and asking them to do more work. Yeah. I love it. Okay. (laughs) I was just going to say, I think this is one of those things that we often talk about being not the content of doing the math. It's how you get there and what resources you need to use and how you have them at your disposal and how you can put them in a place where you can access them easily. Like you said, using a purple paper, it's a different color. So it's very easily spotted in a notebook, et cetera. But a lot of kids, they take the notes, but they have no idea what they wrote down. And that is hard. That's hard. Also, there's a lot of kids, like you said, that have major gaps in their math vocabulary and what they remember how to do. They knew it in the moment, but they don't remember how to do something from three years ago. Fair enough. It's hard. But I think making sure that we remember to give everybody some grace on that is important. Most definitely. And I think the biggest thing too is when Someone is a mathematician in the real world or like uses math in real life. It's not this, I'm recalling everything without having guides along the way. And I think that's one of the biggest things for students is to then build a resource guide that they made themselves and isn't like a foreign textbook 
that they're able to use as a reference. So when it happens, like I'm taking that transition point from one year to the next and I see a word and I'm like, I know what that word is, but I actually have like my own personal dictionary of all my math vocabulary that I made with my outside support. And so now I remember it. That's my favorite. I love that. That's one of the things that we have talked about a ton on the podcast is about how we have to acknowledge that there is math vocabulary and that building that own resource guide, that's something that we often do one-on-one with our clients. The goal is independence and autonomy, helping them to know what to do when they don't know what to do. And their first step is going back to that resource guide. And I love the tip of it being a different color. It becomes very simple. That's great. What else would you want us to know? When I take notes in class, what do I do with them? Do I even get anything from reading notes? And for myself when I'm doing math, not really. If I just graze over them, it looks like a bunch of work, but it's a bunch of work that's done correctly. So how am I supposed to gather anything other than like, oh yeah, it looks really nice and clear and neat. And I can see what's going on on here. So I think the biggest thing with notes, it's notes are a guide for what to do when you don't know what to do next. And the most valuable thing you can do when you're prepping for a test or wanting to know if you actually know something is just practice, 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 and then understanding in your notes how to read it to determine like what's a similar problem. Mm. So I really like using, if a student has like a test cup coming and we're able to discern what the topics are and finding practice problems that are similar. I like using Khan Academy and Delta Math for this because they could just infinitely generate problems. But you can also just like search worksheets with that topic. Mm-hmm. And then just going and being like, all right, we have this problem. Let's go find a similar problem in your notes. And using that type of clue before we even practice the problem. So you know what I'm doing and where can I go when I'm stuck. Love that priming. What else would you share with us? <laughs> Another big thing is there's a bunch of additional resources on Khan Academy and Delta Math for prep over the summer. And so, you know, you just mentioned, how do we backfill those things? I think the summer is the best time when you're getting math specific support. It is the time to get, if possible, the test scores from your school and figure out where are my gaps. Maybe you're still holding a gap from sixth grade to geometry when you're in eighth grade. And then that's going to really impact when you hit geometry in high school. So zoning in on those, finding relevant practice and using that time during the summer without having the fear of it being actually assessed and building up on those building blocks. Mm-hmm. Something we always talk about, using summer effectively. And parents are always wondering how that is how. I was doing it this morning with a client. Fractions, fractions, fractions. And you know, fractions are the biggest predictor of student success in high school math. Hmm. Okay, so talk to us more about that. So if you think of like what a fraction is, it's like pieces to parts. We think of like that whole pie slice, but a fraction becomes a ratio in sixth grade. It's a certain rate that we're traveling. And then in seventh grade and eighth grade, depending on what student tracks are, that becomes slope. Yes. After that, it becomes non-ratios. And so once kids leave the realm of algebra one and go into algebra two pre-calc, then they're all focusing on different types of rates. So if they are not understanding that two thirds is equivalent to four six, then how can they determine irregular patterns in the future if they don't have that mathematical competency? 
And it just makes it a big challenge later on. Mm. Wow. (laughs) I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. With that specific verbiage that you just, okay. Yeah. So the biggest thing I think too, for like, what can parents do if their students are open to it? If there can be regular fraction practice when they're still in the late elementary and mid's year where they're just simplifying fractions and that's all they do for like 60 seconds a day, that can really help with developing those later skills. Hmm. I'm just letting that sink in. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. I'm loving the actionable advice. Can we talk about word problems? Yeah. Every kid walks in and says, I hate word problems. Why do I need to do them? As teachers and ed therapists, we know why we need to have them do it because it's real life. And taking into account kids that struggle with language learning disabilities, word problems are also hard because they then have the language part to decipher what is actually being asked of them and actually reading and all of that. But let's talk about word problems and why they are so hard and what you guys as teachers wish we knew to help. Yeah. So I think a lot of times students think it's hard because you can't just read it once and answer it. It's the same as if you were reading like a prompt on an essay. And if you just scanned it once and then tried to write the essay, you could be writing your essay about something completely unrelated, but you would think it was right because you wrote the essay. And on the math piece, the difference I think about math is you get feedback so more readily and so more clearly, and you can't like skirt along the way. It's black and white. It's right or wrong. Yeah. And, you know, for some students, that's the worst part of it. It's so clear when you're wrong and you turn to your next door neighbor and you're like, they got 19 and I got 17. What did I be wrong? And I must be, I must be bad at math versus I misinterpreted the question and I answered something completely different. Mm. So, The biggest thing about word problems is decoding and focusing on different pieces. And for this, I use the three read strategy. It's like a fairly popular strategy that I think a lot of teachers know about, but don't necessarily use because it's more time consuming, but it helps so much. So what's the strategy? Okay. So first kids are going to need like highlighters or markers or something to annotate the problem. And it's all about annotation and interpreting before solving. So in the first read, and I also have the kid read the problem out loud because there's so much awareness that happens when you read it out loud than if you had just grazed over it. Because when you're grazing over it for math problems, a lot of times you just skip and look at keywords without recognizing the whole relationship between them. So on the first read, your whole thing is just to determine what type of problem. So I look through the whole problem and I'm like, oh, this is a percents problem. If a bottle of Tide was 11.20 and then became 9.99, what was the markdown? Okay. I circle the word markdown and I say, this is a percents problem. And then I read it one more time and I say, the Tide problem And I'm going to read it and I'm going to determine key numbers or key facts in the problem. And so in this problem, I know that the bottle was originally $11.20. So I would circle that and then it is $9.99. And then I read it one more time and I'm going to determine relationships now. I know that this is a percents problem. I have two numbers. 
I can make a prediction. So let me go ahead and read one more. And I know this is a markdown, which means my percent is decreasing. So I'm predicting that we're going to have a percent that's less than 100. And now that I have all this information, I'm going to draw a picture. Some kids call this tape diagrams. Some kids call them barked tapes. If they really want to, they can draw a picture of Tide if they're an artistic student and they want to show that it's decreasing in value. But the taking the time to draw and diagram, by the time they've drawn the diagram, they understand like, if I have the whole bottle of Tide, I'm looking for a percent that's less. The kids can recognize a whole as 100%. So I should be looking for a percent that's less than 100 and I can check my work that way. And then you could think about how can I use this? And kids are going to have multiple different ways to solve this. They might write an equation. They might write equivalent ratios, but they'll figure out what that percent is. Hmm. Really, what I'm liking about this episode already as we're recording it is that this is extremely actionable for educational therapists and learning specialists. Okay. One of the things we also wanted to talk about was... Your thoughts and feelings on steps charts. So what I would love for you to do is define what that is and then share your perspective. So a steps chart is you have this type of problem, you do this, you do this, and then here's the answer. And so I think of the classic one is like PEMDAS. And then the thing that happens is PEMDAS isn't a rule. We don't always have to do it in that order. You could distribute across parentheses. You can add with the tune up parentheses. Sometimes you can do addition that's unrelated at the side because it doesn't affect the order. And it can really confuse children that there's different multitudes of ways to do it. And if it violates the rule or the function that they were set, then it's like, oh, wait, wait, wait. You told me this was a rule, but now it's not a rule. And so I don't think there's anything wrong with having a steps chart, but explaining that the steps chart is like backup and not a law that we have to do things in this order. But it's not a law that we can violate the orders of the steps and it still makes the equation true. And so I think something that you can use a steps chart is is saying like it's a suggested order, but not always true. And also practicing times when you might not go in that order. So I can think of an example of like having... 2x plus 6x equals 3x plus 8. A teacher might automatically say, or at their parents or anyone might say, oh, first you have to add 2x plus 6x. Uh, but you don't have to. You could also subtract 3x from both sides. Both are completely valid. And having that conversation with the student about like multiple different ways to answer a problem can feel really awkward because the student really just wants one way to run with it. But if you let them percolate on that, they'll feel more comfortable with approaching things in the way they see it. And they'll continue to build that self-confidence with math. That creativity and flexibility, while initially unnerving, because what students like about math is that it's very clear cut. There's not opinion, right? It's you have it right or you have it wrong. But I want to play devil's advocate a little bit because the way that we learned math as kids, it was right or wrong the way you did it, right? But now there's 1,700 ways to get there. And as long as the teacher honors the steps along the way and the journey, there's more opportunities. Yeah. So I think if we get them younger and we can start talking to them about the different ways and them understanding that a little bit more so that when they get to the higher math, they can see that there are the different ways of approaching it. 
that would be helpful because there are so many kids that go, oh no, this is the only way to do it. And that just ends up being the same story as they get older. And like you said, you don't have to go only one way to get to the answer. Anyway. Big job sometimes of the ed therapist to relay to the teacher when things are still correctly done by the student, even though they're formatting be different than the teacher that works at. That's one of my biggest frustrations working with students. And they're like, I only got like half credit on this. And I was like, why? Well, because it wasn't in the format that the teacher got it. It's like, is it still correct? Yes, but not in the format desired. And I think that's something teachers have to open their mind to that it's not going to be necessarily in the way that we were taught. And you have those brilliant mathematicians who can do it in their head and don't need all the steps and whatnot, but then get it wrong because they need to show the steps. And like you said, the format isn't what the teacher wanted. So it's wrong, even though the answer is correct, which we are trying to teach them how to write out the steps and all of that. That's a big part of our job for kids that are brilliant at math, but struggle with it. But I think what you're saying is, is very valid. And we all just have to be a little bit more cognizant of what each kid needs for sure. Teachers, a therapist, all of us. One of the things we talk about a lot is teaching the kids that work with us what to do when they don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. So what do you want to share about that when it comes to math? So the first thing I want kids to do when they don't know what to do is to utilize the resources that they already created. Self-made resources are, of course, like the easiest ones to interpret because you wrote it down. And it's in your handwriting and you have a personal connection to it. And you're better able to recall like, oh yeah, I remember being in class that day. So the best thing that a student could have is a really well-organized notebook or binder, or even if they're doing iPad notes that sorts them by the date, whatever works best for them, they can recall on that. And then of course, they're going to reach a hiccup when they get something that they're practicing at home. And they're like, we didn't, I don't remember doing this in class or I was sick or I don't have these notes. And then the question becomes, where can I do it? So I think for each student has is different. I think of it as like, are you a kid who goes to Ikea, takes something home, throws away the instructions is like, I'll just figure it out by myself. And for a kid like that, I recommend utilizing apps like Mathway or PhotoMath and then figuring out where the answer is and then figuring out how to get to that step. And for certain students like that, that is exactly what they need. I need to see it once. I need to make a lot of mistakes and I'll learn from my mistakes. For the students who use the instructions to follow support, I think it's really valuable to find similar problems through, you can use Khan Academy, you can use a million different YouTube videos. You could also use Edpuzzle, which has the little stops in between to check for understanding. And to use those as resources before trying novel problems. Love this. Yeah. So here's a question for you. Okay. What would you say to educational therapists and learning specialists who are really afraid to tackle math? When you have a fear of tackling math, it is actually the best time to connect with your learner. Mm. I don't have a math fear, but I have a major writing fear. And I express that with my students and I share them my struggles. And then I explain to them that I'm not always going to be perfect, but we will learn through this together. Mm-hmm. And I definitely don't shy away then from using educational technology supports to perfect that. Sometimes I get pushed 
with students when I hit a student who's in like calc and I'm like, oh gosh, I haven't seen this in a second. How do we do a limit as it approaches positive infinity? Mm-hmm. And I have to substitute it. And I was like, you know what? We can use photo math here. Why don't I spend some time teaching you how to do it? So the next time that you hit the same stumbling block, you know how to do it when I'm not with you. Yeah. I also think a big fear of math as us as kids, when we took it as children, like our brains were not fully developed. We were still, you know, passing notes in class, but re-seeing math as an adult has made stuff that like fully didn't click when I was younger now starts to click. And I think getting that exposure when you're older, more mature, more aware of things really builds that self-confidence in yourself to work with the learner on that topic. I 100% agree. And I think we don't have to have all the answers. We're not teaching the answers. We're teaching the process. I think the biggest thing about both teaching math and helping math with students is math is really abstract and it's really complicated for students to grasp, but it's always rooted in the purpose of describing something, not in words, but in numbers. So if I think of what is math, what is its purpose? Why do we teach it in such like intensity at these grades? It's to describe the world of science. It's to describe the world of economics. It's able to craft buildings and architecture and having opportunities for students, especially those who are like a little apathetic about it, teaching it as a opportunity to solve a problem or a puzzle, as opposed to getting things right or wrong, and also connecting it to real things that they love. I think of stats in baseball for a student who is not so enthused about like understanding fractions. Well, here's a bunch of fractions that are mathematically accurate. Why don't we talk about who is taking the best? Oh gosh, I'm not going to pretend like I know any baseball terms. Rachel (laughs) might know this better than I do. But when they go and they actually hit the ball instead of not hitting the ball, (laughs) there's a fraction that a student can play with that also becomes a percentage and that also becomes a decimal. And that's something that makes math not so scary because that's something not that necessarily they have to love baseball, but they can contextualize someone going at bat and hitting a ball. I love it. Me too. Thank you so much for taking the time to come join us today. I think you just gave us all a very different perspective on how to approach math. And I appreciate you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was great. Anna, can you do our signature sign off? Yeah. Have a great week, Smarties. Have a great week. Have a great week.